This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is raising capital. No, not really, but almost. We'd be the only one who isn't. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, Dr. Nirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. How are you? Very good, Captain. How are you? Mate, I'm exceptionally well. I feel like we should be raising capital right now. Am Mate, I, I agree out? with that. I think I agree with that. And we'll, we'll not raise it on a discount, too. We'll raise it ah. at a higher price. So, and I'm all, right. I'm all for all for raising capital. <laughs> we might have given away the lead there. We are going to talk about some capital raisings. I say some, I should say all the capital raisings. There is so much going on right now. Companies out there raising money and not just the usual suspects either, by the way. A new list compared to last week. We'll talk about whether or not Australia is going to have any airlines left at the end of this particular pandemic. Some companies that are doing well and, of course, oil under 20 bucks a barrel, mate. This is... These are strange, strange old times, are they? They're absolutely strange. Uh, who would have imagined uh, the entire swats, large swaths of economy closed and no airlines flying? So. It's just bizarre. I don't know if you saw Tangent to start with. Nine News about three or four nights ago actually had a little story showing the fact you actually see the Great Wall of China without smog. You could see the uh, apparently the Himalayas from up to 200 kilometres away for the first time in <laughs> decades. I, I'm not going to say that you know, it's a good thing, of course, it's not having this particular pandemic, but I'll tell you what, there's, there's, some, there's some positive kind of silver linings in this particular cloud, aren't they? Well, one of the things, I think I saw some pictures of uh, LA, I saw some pictures of, you know, actually Mumbai and, you know, and, and maybe Shanghai as well. And these are places that are, you know, typically quite polluted, right? Yeah, right and right. Uh, with, you know, less cars on the road, less, I guess, airplane traffic and things like that. There's, so, I mean, there's something it says, right? We usually live in a lot of pollution. And maybe we should do something about that. You know, this is maybe a lesson to take from here. You hope maybe, I mean, look, it's probably hoping to, and look, there are, there are bigger short-term issues to deal with, of course, people's lives in the balance, but there is some, I mean, there's also been stories around, talked around that, you know, maybe more people will actually live as a result of the reduction in pollution that may actually die of coronavirus, which is, is something kind of a little bit bizarre when you think about it that way. Hopefully we can combine the two. We can solve this particular pandemic and maybe just maybe work out a way to stop messing up the world, eh? Absolutely. I, I think, yeah, you know, I think the pandemic is definitely uh, first priority. But, you know, yeah. some of these slow killers are stuff that we don't see on a regular basis, right? Yeah. Be it smoking, it took the world so many, so many years to actually get behind, you know, the smoking is actually bad for you, right? <laughs> right. Um, and the same thing, you know, we are smoking pollution every day. So maybe we should get behind that too uh, before it's too late. It's a funny, uh, massive tangent again, not to, not to at all uh, reduce the importance of the coronavirus, but you're right. If, if, if the deaths from pollution numbers were published daily the way coronavirus deaths are published, and frankly, like quite honestly, also things like, you know, world hunger, more people are going to die every day of, of hunger uh, and malnourishment. I mean, these, it's a very first world problem. And, and again, it's not, not that it's not a problem, but there is something hopefully we might learn out of this in terms of, you know, just because it's noticeable, just because, and you know why? I mean, we care because it might hurt us, right? That's what it comes down to is, you know, the, yeah. the pollution might hurt other people. Hunger's going to kill other people. But if I'm going to get coronavirus, then all of a sudden it's getting pretty serious pretty pretty fast. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the number of deaths just out of breast cancer alone, uh, right. you know, which has only tangential links to, uh, say, for example, smoking, is huge, right? So, I mean, the number of people who die of cancer is every year is, is a phenomenal number. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the thing that usually people think is like smoking, I have the choice of at least not smoking. I have the potential of running away from someone who is smoking and we have got these rules, right? Don't smoke within 10 meters of the building and things like that. Uh, I, I think the thing with coronavirus too is the fact that 
you could be an unlikely suspect um, carrying the right. virus and you could land up getting the virus for no fault of yours. I think, I think that's, the, you know, and of course, you know, it's only a face and then it's something news and the fact oh, that, course, course. you know, and, and the fact that death happens and is happening um, and all those numbers ticking, right? You know, tens of thousands of people dying. So I think it has a different, but yeah, you're right. Like, I mean, these other things are absolutely real problems, right? Hunger, for example, mm-hmm. number of, the sheer number of people who live below the poverty line, for example, mm-hmm. it's, it's a humongous number right, that right. we don't think about on a, on a daily basis. So yeah, maybe, maybe the world starts thinking about some of these things in a different light, which would be really great. We can only hope so, mate. Turns out, though, this is not the social policy or the health podcast. This is the money podcast. So with one of our strangest and, and most um, tangential tangents so far, we'll, we'll get on with the rest of the podcast. We're going to talk about all those things in just a second. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy, let's get on with it and... I don't know. I, I, I just feel like I should have my hand out. I feel like I should be asking somebody for money from somewhere. I'm not talking about the job seeker, job keeper stuff. There's billions being spent there, but I don't, maybe not more money, but almost as much money seems to be raised at the moment by ASX companies with their hands out. Trying to kind of, you know, pass the old hat around. It must be a pretty worn out old hat by now. We've talked about Flight Center. We've talked about Webjet. Um, we know Virgin is, is kind of in some sort of talks to do something with somebody. But it's not even just those guys. Businesses like Bapcor, the auto parts business that in theory should not need any money um, to deal with this particular pandemic. Invocare, the funeral mob. Uh, again, <laughs> not to make light of the virus, but man, I mean, you would have thought if anyone's doing well in a pandemic, it's a funeral director. And yet they're putting their hand out for money. Even little companies like Electro Optics Systems, and I'll get you to explain what that one does. Just before we do any of that, what's going on with capital raisings, mate? We talked about them last week, but why has every man and his dog got the hand out? Well, I think at a very high level, if the large swaths of the economy are closed, uh, money is not changing hands, um, then, you know, basically companies are running into cash flow uh, problems, right? It's, it's basically the equivalent of even think of, you know, if you think of a restaurant, right, the restaurant is functioning, you know, as a simple example, a restaurant is otherwise functioning properly. Uh, you know, it's probably able to take a couple of, you know, um, a couple of weeks of, uh, of, 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 of slowdown or even a closure, right? It can, it, can, it can close for a couple of weeks for renovation, for example, right, right. but it can't close for months. And it's, just, it's effectively a cash flow problem. So a lot of, you know, which is interesting because a lot of the big businesses, one would think are well capitalized. But I think in my mind, as I've said before, it is reflective of the, the capitalization status of some of these companies, right? And again, I think yeah. Bapcor is an interesting example. Um, one would call it sort of blue chip, uh, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's revealing it is not really that blue chippy when we think about it because, you know, it, 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 what is incredible is I actually did think I was waiting for Bapcor to say we're going to raise capital <laughs> right. because uh, when I ran a screen on it, I was amazed to see that Bapcor only had $40 million of cash. Hmm. That is pretty low for a, for a company of that scale, the company which has got a lot of cash requirements because it has to buy parts, pay for the parts. It's a pretty capital intensive business in that form. So, you know, $40 million of cash, several hundred million dollars of debt um, hmm. would have almost made sure that, you know, $600 million of debt, $40 million of cash. This is a business that I think in the best of times would run okay. But this is not a business that is designed or it has not been run as a, as a company in a way that is designed to even take like, you know, three week long shutdown. 
yeah. let alone months-long shutdown. So I, I, you know, this, this has been the general theme with many companies that they have been, you know, running as cash flow as possible, which is okay during good times, but it's not okay right. in rough times. Um, yeah, I think, there's, I think there's a lesson there for business management, as I say, that, you know, this is, this is an example of the way to not run a business, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and I would also say, go as far as to say that they are actually, companies that are raising capital right now are lucky because the credit markets have actually not frozen. Yeah, yeah. And the credit markets have not frozen largely because, you know, the Federal Reserve and the RBA and all these other guys have actually banded together to, to throw cash at unprecedented <laughs> levels, yeah, right? Yeah. From the experience that they've had during the GFCs, that if you don't do something very quickly, actually what would happen is credit markets would freeze. And if the credit markets basically froze, there was no way these guys would be actually able to raise capital at the prices they are actually able to raise capital. Now, of course, if you look at back courses, it looks like a discount. If you go back six months, it looks like you know, it's half the price of what was, um, you know, probably not half the price, but maybe 40% discount over the price maybe six months back, right? That's dilution in my mind. Uh, and you should have been raising capital at that time, <laughs> right? If you thought your balance sheet was kind of stretched, right? So yeah, it's a huge negative mark in my view on management. I think it's just... All of these guys need to go back to management school. Uh, if not, they need to come to this podcast and I'm happy to give them free, uh, free lessons. Because, I mean, I, I would not call any of these companies blue chip anymore um, until they fix their approach to capital management. I think it's just poor, uh, very shoddy. Um, and it's just, I think it's just either it's lack of preparedness or it is, it is overconfidence. Mm. Either one of those things is not good, right? You, you know, it's I, a funny I think one, that's, mate. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's my view, at least. Mm. I, I, I will only, maybe just for balance, maybe just because I, I mean, I think, I think, I think you're a little harsh. I think to some degree, unless we were saying this six months ago before the pandemic, i.e., this is wrong, we're all experts in hindsight, right? And to some, to some degree, I think you're right. The lesson learned is the right lesson. But I think, A, it's hindsight, and B, to some degree, we couldn't have expected. A, a six-month shutdown of the economy, right? Like, I think you, no business was was managed specifically for that purpose. Some had cash because they had cash. Some wanted to keep cash because they were conservative businesses. But broadly, I think anyone said, hey, we should keep this cash in case the, the economy shut down for months at a time. Um, I, I don't I don't. I think you're right at the lessons to be learned. I just wonder whether, you know, it's reasonable to have any at any point, you know, game plan the scenario where, hey, have we got enough cash in case the economy shut for six months? I think, you know, if, if we'd had that conversation, if we were brought in as business consultants to, to Bapcore, for example, three months ago, six months ago, we wouldn't have said, hey, guys, why don't you keep, keep a couple hundred million dollars just in case the economy shut for, for an extended period? Yeah, I think that's a fair question. So, yeah, uh, so we used to own Bapcore in, in Motley Fork Pro. We sold it. Uh, uh, now, we we sold it. Uh, we, uh, there are a couple of reasons why we sold it. I, I think were, uh, as a company, we thought that on the wrong side of the trends, and um, but you're right. Cash flow was never actually the question at that time. Um, mm. But but you know I, I'm not I'm not saying that we are right or we are wrong to um, have not identified this problem. But I think the moment the pandemic started and it was it was obvious that um, you know they would not have cash. Now mm. it, the question really is, I think in my mind from a balance sheet point of view, it is worthy of asking, I think, right now at least, and this is of course with the benefit of hindsight and so on, um, that is $40 million, was $40 million enough, right? And, and the other thing I think which, which is interesting 
with a company like Bapcor is one would think that Bapcor is relatively recession resistant or to some extent at least because that was the assumption, that, right? Yeah, yeah. But but I think the problem is that capital heavy businesses have a lot of capital requirement as, as yeah. an ongoing business, right? So yeah. I think that that is 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 I think what got them. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like I mean as an investor, I think one of the things that I have um, gotten out of this is mm. I've become much more careful in terms of thinking about um, the balance sheets. Like, I, I mean, in a way, right? If you think about it, it's just give you, I'll use your favorite example. So I look at Buffett, right? He's got $120 billion or something like that on the balance sheet. Now, in the best of times, you could say, well, you know, he should be doing something with it. But it, it's a couple of things there. I think that's one is discipline that, okay, I didn't find anything that I thought was worthwhile. Mm-hmm. I being Buffett, so I didn't actually deploy it. And, uh, and B, you know, if I have all that capital and maybe he, you know, and I, I don't understand that well, the operating businesses, there are some pretty capital heavy operating businesses in, in the, mm-hmm. in, in Berkshire, uh, but without going into the details, um, I mean, maybe having that cash actually is useful because it allows them to, you know, sail through these difficult times. So I right, think it's right. just a, uh, I, I, again, if crises like this happen at some regular frequency and, you know, mm. if it happens every 10 years to the GFC or something else, then yep. it is worthwhile maybe trying to be a little bit more prepared for it. Um, I, think that, I, think that's, I think that's absolutely right. And I think the lens, the other lens is, is, is as I said, the credit markets have actually not frozen because I think mm. the, the various uh, reserve banks have actually learned a lesson from the past experience, right? Which is why you would think that, you know, the amount of money that like, for the Australian government is throwing, the amount of, you know, bond buying, for example, like RBA is doing, in normal times, you would say this is crazy, right? Mm. I mean, the amount of money that is being thrown. But, you know, you have to sort of the, what is the other side? The other side is if you don't throw this kind of money, you're going to have massive problems which are going to actually extend for long periods of time, right? So it's, you're picking the, the lesser evil in, in this, in this uh, situation, which is, you know, we're going to, you know, inflate balance sheets and, uh, you know, take on more debt, which eventually has mm-hmm. to be paid by someone, um, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but, you know, maybe it's, the, it, it, I think that's the lesson they have taken. Now, whether it's right or wrong, we'll know probably in the next 10 years. <laughs> so, 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 but yeah, I mean, maybe I'm being uh, too harsh, as you said, you know, and, um, but, you know, well, I'm not the CEO of those companies, right? So it's okay for me to yeah. say that. <laughs> but, the, but, the, but the CEO and the board, boards, maybe they need to think about it a little bit. I know, I think, I, think I think you're absolutely spot on about the lessons from it. I think that's, it's easy to run businesses you know, leanly, which isn't a word, but you know what I mean, uh, when, when things are good. You know, when you, when you don't necessarily plan for these potential outcomes, and you're right, BAPCOR is recession. In, an, in a normal recession, BAPCOR, we'll talk about InvoCare a second briefly, these are recession-resistant businesses that should expect that at best there's no impact, and at worst they actually do better because in BAPCOR's case, they're going to keep servicing older cars because they're not buying new ones. That, in theory, is, is exactly right. In a normal recession, this one, of course, isn't normal. What I think is fascinating about your point, man, I've never thought about it this way, is I think we're probably, as an economy, as a society, I don't, never expected to say this, I think we're probably very, very lucky we had the GFC because yeah. the lessons that were learned both in terms of, I mean, to be honest, the US Fed did really, really well. The Australian government, I think, also did very well. Um, I think other countries like the UK and Europe that tried austerity completely botched it. And I'm kind of glad we had a chance to learn those lessons then. almost 
you know, that was supposed to be the worst thing ever, or at least the worst since the Great, Great Depression. In hindsight, that's given us a wonderful trial run. How do we walk straight into this one without having the GFC, without understanding that credit markets can freeze up, without realizing that companies, you know, sorry, governments and regulators need to throw money at things? If we're trying to learn these lessons now, if the UK was trying to do austerity at the same time or other things were happening, if credit markets froze up because central banks hadn't learned that lesson, this could be a whole lot worse economically than even than it is now, which is which is a hell of a thing given how bad things are economically. It's it's a it's a really interesting observation or kind of thought experiment to think, what if the GFC had never happened? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think like the banks are largely worldwide, actually. You know, the Bessel standards came after that, right? I mean, right, we, right. I, just if you just think about it, exactly as you were saying. So I mean, and I, I think the different companies. So for example, one of the things I've generally noticed is, for example, U.S. companies have much better balance sheet positions today than mm. they had during the GFC, mm. right? Exactly. Australian companies, relatively speaking, are not as well prepared, and that's I think largely because of the fact that we were not as hit during the GFC as yeah, right. some other countries, right? So I think experiences have actually come into play. But irrespective of that, because the world got together about the Basel standards for the banks, right? The banks, I mean, the banks today can actually afford to defer by six months uh, the mortgage payments for, you know, commercial mm-hmm. mortgage or, you know, it's a home mortgage or whatever it is, largely because they've taken that 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 hard work over the past 10 years. So I think, you know, yeah. there's some, you know, and I'm, I'm hopeful that there's some positive things will come out of uh, this pandemic as well, um, you know, and then we'll have, you know, a better financial system as a result. But I think the financial system is actually, is in a much better position to cope with these with these things, right? And I mean, I mean mm-hmm. yeah, so I think that's that's the good news out of all of this. But one more thing, I'll, I'll actually, you know, one of the, one of the fascinating things about BAPCOR, um, and this is again, we're doing a tangent, uh, but with BAPCOR is, you know, one of the things that the BAPCOR's model has been to acquire and grow, right? Now, one would normally think that in this time, um, the smaller, uh, you know, uh, parts dealers or the smaller, you know, service centers, they would actually struggle and therefore BAPCOR could buy them, right? But if BAPCOR could buy them, if they had the cash to buy them, because right now they don't <laughs> have the cash to buy them. Right, so, right, uh, right. I mean, BAPCOR is actually is an interesting position for that reason is, well, you know, the, the stock price is low. I don't have cash. And even if other people are struggling, so am I. How can I actually grow? So, I mean, that part of the growth engine has kind of come unstuck for BAPCOR. Again, right. you know, uh, but, you know, BAPCOR is, again, an in, in, interesting um, company. It looks cheap otherwise, except for the cash mm-hmm. position. Mm-hmm. Mate, um, let's quickly, while we're talking about capital raise, let's just talk about InvoCare very briefly. InvoCare owns about, is it like 20 or 30 different funeral brands? It's some stupidly large number anyway, but it's not quite that high. Um, if, 40% if of the funeral market, right? Sorry, mate? 40% of the funeral market or something like that? Yeah, which is pretty big. So you've probably ever heard of InvoCare. You've definitely seen their brands around. White Lady, Simplicity are two that come to mind immediately. I don't, I don't know if there's not a recommendation of ours, but I certainly know the business. If, if Backcourt was recession resistant, Invocare was supposed to be recession-proof, right? There are two things in life that are certain are supposed to be death and taxes. Um, and frankly, again, not to be too macabre or, or make light of it, but there's an increased number of deaths as a result of coronavirus. I mean, all things considered, you would expect Invocare to be in clover right now. Turns out, again, because it's not a normal recession, the social distancing rules mean that simply there's having less money being spent at funerals because you don't need the big crematoriums, you don't need the big service, you've got... 10 people there as long as no one else has coronavirus or symptoms. I mean, this is a, again, talk about just a strange, strange times we're living through. Even InvoCare has to raise capital right now. Now, fair to say it wasn't 
it's your point about well run. I think you've okay got a bit ahead of itself. I think the company did. I think investors did. Um, it was kind of the poster child stock for a very very long time, and I think probably it got ahead of itself. It wasn't spending enough money on things like refurbishments and that kind of stuff. The balance sheet got too stretched, as you've already mentioned. So similar kind of scenario. But man, when Invocare's got to raise capital, things really we are we are through the looking glass, aren't we? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things I was, I was thinking about for Invocare is, uh, I mean, the Australian government did Invocare a big disservice by actually acting ahead of time, right? <laughs> so, in a way, oh, they, because the Australian government acted, uh, yeah. you know, but, and, we, you know, we are getting ahead with flattening the curve. Well, we don't, right, you know, right, we, right. we're not going to have as many debts as, I guess, the modeling would have shown otherwise. Yeah. So, um, you know, so Invocare got hit because of not just the number of debts being done, also got hit mm-hmm. because of the social distancing. So again, you know, um, yeah, it's just Invocare raising capital is a strange one. But as you said, like, you know, Invocare is also a pretty, um, you know, debt heavy business. Yeah. It has been acquiring, it has been, you know, re, you know, you know, refurbishing and so on. And as you said, a large chunk of the funeral business is actually the the service component, right? I mean, everything else, there's fixed costs for them that they have to spread across and there's, you know, you mm-hmm. get more people mm-hmm. coming through. That's how you, you know, you organize a little after you know, service thing for people and you, you can actually make some money off it. So that's how they make money. And nothing wrong with that business model, but yeah, that, that's the business model itself has come unstuck because of the rules. So uh, there was, in a couple of weeks time, Matt, we might talk about, uh, we might do a little bit segment on bounce back ideas or at least the concept, right? So we're probably too early to think about bounce back necessarily, although the market certainly bounced back. But if you think about businesses like InvoCare and others, there is, you know, enterprising investors are now thinking ahead weeks and months and thinking, okay, at what point do we think about businesses that are going to have some sort of decent recovery from this when the world, the worst is over? There are some businesses where people won't go straight back and they may change their, their purchasing patterns. You've got to assume that people are going to go back to InvoCare because Again, people are going to keep dying and, and to some degree when this is all lifted, things get back to normal. There's probably a range of companies that are worth having a, having a look around at, just try and maybe speculate as to what might happen as we as we come to the other side. That's probably for another for another time. Before, well, not before we do that, we'll do that in a couple of weeks, but let's talk about airlines. Virgin, uh-huh. so we're recording this Thursday morning as we tend to do. Uh, Virgin Australia came out literally as we were pressing record on this on this podcast and I will say for those listening at home, this is a Zoom one. So if the audio quality is a bit ordinary, again, Doc and I are practicing social distancing and, uh, and recording this from our respective homes and offices. Um, so, mate, the, the airlines have had a world of trouble. Virgin this morning has applied to have its share suspended for another seven days. Its current shareholders, the largest shareholders are big airlines. Air New Zealand, I think, from memory, is it Malaysia or Singapore? Um, Singapore Airlines. Home. Sorry, mate? Singapore Airlines. I think Virgin Group. Virgin Group also owns some shares in it. A tiny, a tiny stake. Yeah, these guys don't want to put any money in. Apparently, and and fair enough, they've got their own problems at home, right? If you, if you, if you're any of those companies, you're not going to be putting more money in. That being said, it's in the it's trading hot for another seven days while it tries desperately to sort itself out. Do we have two airlines when this is over? You know, it's the interesting thing. I mean. I think we should have two airlines, like, you know, and I don't really care whether it's Virgin or someone else, right? Um, uh, I think we, we should have two airlines, whether or not we will have two airlines is a very difficult question to answer <laughs> right now. Um, but I think we will have two airlines, but whether it's Virgin mm-hmm. or not, that's the, I think the reason we'll have two airlines is, you know, 
there's a natural tendency for uh, you know government to support competition and for yeah. competition to essentially if if this become a monopoly uh, somebody else will come in and see that there is an opportunity to make some money by cutting prices and you know uh, competing right. on important routes and things like that so somebody will come in um, i'm not fully across as to as to why you know, what sort of support, you know, should the government take a stake in these businesses or not? I, I, I agree with, with you that the, the government should not be giving them free money. Um, but yeah, I mean, is Virgin Airlines that the government should be trying to uh, support and save? I don't know the answer to that. Right. I mean, the thing is, because let, you know, like from the government's point of view, the government could say, well, you know, you could let Virgin collapse <laughs> and, and, you know, and then somebody might pick up the, you know, pick up the thread. Mm-hmm. The, the only comment I'll make about that is the, you know, an airline collapsing would also have an impact on jobs and, you know, the whole supply chain around that, right? So there might be some, uh, there might be some benefit to actually trying to save it before you lose all, all the talent uh, mm-hmm. that's required to run 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 the airlines, so yeah. But I, I mean, I mean, I hope that there will be two airlines. I mean, you know, two airline works really well, or sort of three if you count, or three or four. That you know, if you count Tiger and Rex into the mix. But yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, you know, the other thing could be that the, the if Virgin collapses, here's an idea. Uh, free idea for uh, the treasurer, uh, you know, he can quote me for this. But if, if Virgin collapses, for example, he could force, we could force uh, Qantas to actually spin off um, Jetstar as a separate airline. Oh, there you go. Right? Interesting. Yeah. And if you spin off Jetstar as a separate airline, then you can have competition between Qantas and Jetstar. So. I like it, mate. I like it. The treasurer, will, I'll call Josh and let him know. I'll, get, I'll send him the link to the podcast. You can have a listen and uh, get some advice there. I, like you, mate, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit sanguine. I, I think, it's funny that we're kind of assuming Qantas will be okay, but Virgin's the one in trouble. I think the reality is going to be that over time, both have some challenges ahead of them that may well, without some sort of external support, see both or either potentially go to the wall. There's no guarantee that Virgin's the only one in trouble. It's in the most trouble, um, but it's not the one that you know is is the only risk right now. To some degree, I, 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 it feels to me, really honestly, um, that... If I was the gov, if I was the government, I had the opportunity to take a stake in an airline. And look, there's a whole of ideology around this, right? I think the ideology is misplaced. But if you get a chance to take a stake in an airline for cents on the dollar, and it's in your power to a provide effectively unlimited cash flow if if it was required for the next X number of months until we get back in the skies, and then Virgin goes back to some sort of pre-crisis levels of travel and profitability, I just I just don't know how the government doesn't make a small fortune putting money into both Qantas and, and, and Virgin now, like the, I mean, the US government, when they bailed out the banks and they bailed out the insurance companies and the, and the, the, um, the automotive companies, that was seen as this big you know, social welfare thing. And it was to some degree, they actually made money. US government made money on those bailouts, right? It makes no sense to me that, do you know that you, you get to keep, as you've said, industry rolling and jobs and all that kind of stuff that we're supposed to be doing. But there's a really, really high chance that government actually makes money and possibly even a decent amount of money by, actually, by doing that as well. It, it feels like, Yes, there's risk. It could, they could go broke and other things could happen, but it feels like a pretty good deal, doesn't it, when the government's already going to be paying for job keeper packages and airline bailouts and everything else anyway? Yeah, I actually, I mean, you know, I, I think I agree with you. Um, again, I mean, 
I think a part here's the here's I think maybe the part of the issue is the ownership structure of uh, Virgin, right? I mean, Virgin is basically um, an airline that is owned by foreign airlines. It's basically yes, foreign exactly. controlled, right? Yeah. Whereas whereas with with Qantas, I think there's a I think there's a Parliament Act if I, or something like that that it can't Correct. be taken over by you know, or the majority holding can't be foreign, for example. Correct. So I think that that form, that's my basis of the assumption that you know uh, Qantas gets saved at some point. Well, Qantas has also been able to raise some debt against its its um, aircrafts, yeah. right, which are parked. So, man, who's I, who's? I, I, would you give that debt? Would you would you loan Qantas money when every other airline is also on the ground? Airplanes are dime a dozen right now. I wouldn't um, be using airplanes as security. I've got to say, would you? <laughs> well, here's the thing, right? I mean. Who buy? It's a, you know the, the strange things happen because strange things have you know because there's strange mandates around the world, right? <laughs> Who? Why would? So here's the thing, right? I could ask this. I could you could rephrase the question. The you know, Australian government sold what 13 billion dollars or something like that of bonds, right? At very paltry yeah. uh, interest rates. I mean, who is yeah. giving that money? <laughs> why oh. would anybody actually? Well, you know, what, I, I kind of agree with that. But at least you know you're going to get paid back, right? Like, if, if your security is, the, is the, full, the full faith and force of the Australian government, I take that over half a dozen planes that may or may not be worth something at some point in the future. If, if the airline industry is a, is a graveyard of, of airlines no longer flying, the chance you've got any sort of resale value on those planes is, I mean, the Australian government, your, your, your downside is zero, or sorry, is, is, is no loss, right? I mean, it's always possible, yeah. yes, the Australian government goes broke, but let's assume it doesn't. Um, you're going to get paid back. If you're lending money to Qantas, and there's a very real chance those planes are worth meaningfully less than the security that they're currently factored for. Maybe you get half your money back, a quarter of your money back, two thirds of your money back. I don't know what the number is. Just feels like a really, I, I would, I would, I would borrow, I would lend money to any, almost anybody else before I let someone use airplanes or security for my loan. No, that's, that's true. Yeah. I don't know how, what is the current value of those airlines that, uh, you know, maybe they've got like $10 billion of airline, um, you, you know, at market value today for yeah. which they've given them a couple of billion dollars yeah. and therefore maybe there's enough safety that they can take those airlines. And I, I really don't know what the deal is, but yeah, you make the point. Yeah, I agree with that. It's a funny, funny old world, mate, as, as we've said. Uh, mate, before we move on, I want to tell people they can join your investment service, Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. We've got a pretty good deal available for our members if they join us today. If you like what Doc's got to say, and who wouldn't? He's a smart, sensible bloke. He's also very good looking, funny, and uh, good to have around a dinner table for a party. So, hey, why not join Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities? I can't promise you Doc will come over for dinner, but he'll give you the very best <laughs> investment advice he can muster with Kevin Gandia, who he works with on EO. And you can get that by going to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Get a particularly special deal just for pod listeners by going to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. All right, mate, let's, uh, from, from, the, from the ridiculous to the sublime, from the struggling to the successful, let's talk about a couple of companies. We haven't had good news on this podcast for a while, so let's do a little bit of that now. Bubs Australia, the goat milk infant formula business, which I, I kind of almost have to stop myself sniggering every time I say that because it's, I guess there's no end to the amount of different options you can have with infant formula these days. There was a time when I was a kid where it was Nan 1 and Nan 2 and that was it. Now you can have... Uh, it's the old ad, you know. Was it was it uh, skim, full cream, extra dollop? Um, you can so you got you got A two, you've got the usual stuff. You've got goat milk. I'm, I'm sure I'm missing half a dozen others. There's probably organic there somewhere. Um, Camel milk, kangaroo milk. Can you can't really have kangaroo milk, surely? I don't know. Right. I mean, well, okay, milk. <laughs> <laughs> what do I? Asterisk may not may not be true, but 
Bubs is managing. Look, and full credit to them, mate. They, they've they've done something different. They managed to find a market for it. They released sales this week up sixty seven percent at a time when everyone else is struggling to make a sale. Bubs is having no issues whatsoever getting more people to use this formula. Yeah, like I mean, Bubs is a recommendation um, at EO. Um, so the Bubs is interesting. Interesting because I think uh, one of the things with Bubs is. It is it is trying to make a brand in sort of the infant formula, you know, mm. the the goat milk category, um, and, and, and you know, again, whether or not the claims have any scientific value, that really doesn't. You know, most of these things is all about branding and less yeah, about the scientific, sure. uh, right? I mean, for example, vitamins. You know, do we really need vitamins? We just have fruit <laughs> and vegetables, and we'll get all the vitamins we need. Right? <laughs> yeah, uh, right. But people still have vitamins. So, I mean, but I think it's the, it's the brand positioning. They've done a good job of brand positioning in, in, the, mm. in the, goat, the goat world and in the goat milk world. And they sort of control about, what, 80% or 90% of the goat milk available in Australia and New Zealand. So, I mean, that's, you know, that plays into, you know, we have good goat, we have got good goats and we've got good goat milk, which we can now, which other people around the world can buy, um, and which is what they're basically selling. And there's a, there's a strong demand for that. Now, I mean, it's a bit of a strange thing. So, I mean, A2 milk has been doing very well as well. Mm. And, and largely because if you, think about, if you think about pandemics, right? I mean, and you live in a say, developing country, one of the things that you would probably try to do is you might cut other things, but you probably milk for your child is not one of the things that you want to cut. And when it comes to giving milk to your child, you probably want to give them the best you think you possibly can or whatever you think is the best. Right. And that comes to brand positioning. So I think they've done a good job there uh, with brand positioning. Also, we need to realize that they're, they're growing off a small base. So they're really a smaller company growing off a small base. So, you know, one of the advantages you have if you are, this is a strange thing, right? It, small companies can die in a pandemic because yeah. they might not be well run. But if you're a smaller company in a pandemic and you're well run, you're well capitalized. Uh, with good backers, then one of the advantages you have is you can actually get growth because you're growing off a small bits, right? right, right. And uh, so that's, you know, working in, um, in Bob's favor. So I think that's good. What, what I think was most pleasing in the report uh, to me and somebody asked me, you know, what, you know, that was a good report. But I said, that was a really good report because it was a positive cash flow report. So they made like $3 million of, you know, cash flow, positive cash flow from operations, not, you know, free cash mm-hmm. flow. Um, because they had a bunch of investing and they had, they had some milestone payouts to some stuff that they had, you know, uh, bought. So, I mean, if you ignore that, those would all be one-off, uh, one-off payments. So one of the things that I thought was most interesting is businesses is getting to scale, mm. right? And most of these sort of businesses, it's pretty capitalized if you think about it, but you've got, you've got to spend in sales and marketing. You have to really spend to get the distribution footprint. Mm-hmm. But once you get that, you should be able to get a lift in, in your sales, right? So you should get a lot of scalability that comes into place. So you've got some fixed costs that you have to spend up front to get out there. Uh, but after that, you should get that lift if you can keep the sales going. So I like, I really like Bob's. I personally own some shares, purchased at much higher prices. Um, uh, and I think for us, uh, both of those Bob's, we actually got recommended Bob's twice. I think both of them are actually currently losing to the market as far as mm-hmm. I can tell. Uh, but I, I really like what they're doing. Um, it's again a high risk play largely because again for all sorts of reasons right the small company um, goat milk can go out of favor mm. you know because somebody might come out and say you know it doesn't have all the benefits that is being claimed by the company one of the benefits that's claimed is that is that digestion of goat milk is is very similar to digestion of uh, human milk 
Um, so that, that that's an appealing factor. Um, yeah, but, but you know, like on a higher uh, risk spectrum, I do like uh, bubs quite a bit. And I thought the report was vindication of s- sort of how we are thinking about the company. Uh, but I'll, again, as, as I caution everyone with with uh, extreme opportunities type of companies, these are you know smaller venture scale companies really. Um, so you just need to keep that in mind. I would never tell anyone to sort of back the truck. <laughs> this is not a back the truck type of investment. Uh, you know, add little, buy, you know, add a little bit more when you feel more comfortable with it. But, you know, don't go and, it's not companies that I would typically say go load up on. You've got to, you've got to be careful <laughs> that of that. So, yeah. Makes sense, makes sense. Mate, let's, um, we got one more, and then we will get into our favorite mailbag. But I want to talk about oil. Now, we're not particularly energy investors at The Motley Fool. I don't know we have any energy companies, do we, across any of our services at the moment. So that probably tells you something. Um, generally speaking, we avoid them because it's very, very hard to make a substantial ongoing amount of money with a commodity product when everyone else has the same thing. These are perfectly substitutable products. A barrel of oil is a barrel of oil is a barrel of oil. Now, it's not exactly true. There are different grades of oil, but effectively, they're all you know, essentially... Um, equalized by by you know being barrel of oil equivalent when you make gas for example or the energy density of different types of oil and different types of parts around the world also influence the price but broadly speaking per per joule of energy you're getting you're getting a known price and there's no bit you can't you can't add to it you can't be goat oil and you can't be a2 oil you, you've got oil and it's oil and it's oil and that's all you got and so to some degree it's very very hard to make money unless you're the super low cost producer now strabe is was and probably always will be, at least until the oil runs out. The problem is that even it is having trouble getting the oil price up. Now, OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, is called an organization, it should be called a cartel, maybe it should be called CPEC, the Cartel of Petroleum Exporting Countries, because for, for decades, something that would be illegal if it was done inside our borders, we, we know there were cardboard box cartels, allegedly. I'm not sure if that was ever formally proven, but so I'll just say allegedly to make sure we don't get in trouble. Um, you can't collude to price fix in Australia. It's illegal. But because we all need oil and because there's a country's not companies, we kind of all go, well, that kind of sucks, but I guess we, it is what it is. We're stuck with it. So that's, that's something. Uh, except that then Russia turned up and then Venezuela turned up. And even probably before they were big players or bigger players, the US shale operations also turned up and the oil price I don't, I'm sure it has been this low. I don't remember. It's now less than 20 bucks a barrel US. Now, oil was 40, 50, 80. I think, was it over 100 at one point? I think it might well have been. It was certainly, I think it, you know, it, it crossed 120 at one point. I think it crossed 120 yeah. at one point. So literally six times the current price at one point. Now, we know it's all about supply and demand, or at least should be. OPEC has tried for years and been successful, frankly, for years to not make it about supply and demand, or at least restrict supply artificially to make it about the available supply. And demand and that kept the price high. But even this week, was it this week, earlier this week, like last week, Donald Trump got in the blower with Saudi Arabia and Russia said, guys, this is this is out of control. For the first time in many, many decades, a US president actually wants higher oil prices, not lower. Try and get that through your melon. That's a tough one when you know petrol prices matter for, for people in terms of how they vote. But Trump also has to maintain jobs and industry in the US. They weren't successful, mate. They did a deal at about $24 a barrel, give or take. It's mm-hmm. now under 20. Now, at the moment, and there was, by the way, a volume cut. The general culprit right now is considered to be the global economy. It's simply a case of there's not enough growth going around 
to use all the oil we have. So again, we think about supply and demand. If demand falls, even while supply is being cut, we're still seeing prices fall. Yeah, it's very interesting. So uh, I was, well, while you were talking, I actually put up the chart for the history of oil prices actually all over the place. It's one of the charts in which you can't draw a trend. It's not like the stock <laughs> market chart that if you, if you zoom up, so I was looking for prices from 1950 uh, onwards, it's basically a haphazard line going up and down. Um, <laughs> but it hit $165 US wow. dollars in June 2008. There you go. Imagine that. So it's, it's fascinating. So, so, you know, I think this oil thing is really interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, the fact that the U.S. has officially joined the cartel <laughs> is, in my mind, mind-boggling. Um, you know, that's a country that, you know, champions itself on being the champion of free market. Uh, you know, it joining the discussion to actually price fix. Um, on uh, on oil, or at least put a floor with production cuts. That is, is stunning. That is bizarre, isn't it? That, like, is, that I, is just that is it's the weirdest stunning. thing in the world to me. Yeah, I would have never again imagined that could happen, right? Uh, so uh, that that's weird. The fascinating thing I think with the oil is, I would have always thought though that oil prices over time should go down, largely because. Uh, you know, technology is improving. We are able to find oil in bizarre, weird places. Like, I mean, you know, finding, you know, for, you know, you know like tar sands, finding oil, the shale gas oil or the tar sands oil, mm -hmm. that would not have been feasible, say, 50, 60, 70 years ago, right? So right. technology makes, you know, finding oil at different locations easy. And because it makes it finding oil at different locations easy, it should increase the supply of oil in some sense. Technology improvement should result in you know oil becoming cheaper to access. So I mean, none of that is surprising. Um, and in a funny way, actually, if oil prices go down, then cost of many things go down, right? The cost of travel goes down, cost of transportation goes down, you know, cost of right. flying Plastics. goes down. Yep. The cost. So, I mean, it's, it should be a net good thing, <laughs> but it is not because uh, I think there's interest in preventing, you know, the other part of the story, which is, you know, a lot of people, a lot of, industry, a lot of the oil industry could actually go broke because right, right. Uh, the, the price has now become unsustainable for certain parts of the oil industry, right? So that's, yeah, it's interesting, but yeah, I don't know what to make of this. Uh, and, and of course, you're right to say that, you know, the reason the oil prices is... is the oil is not able to sustain is the large parts of the economy are actually closing. And the airlines are using turbine fuel at this moment. So, mm. so yeah. It's, um, a, it's a bizarre old world, isn't it? It's bizarre. Yeah. Interesting too. So the US, US shale is, is completely unprofitable at this current price. Uh, so that's, that's the big issue. And, and also we don't get too political or too conspiratorial. Uh, the oil states and the resources mining states were Donald Trump's heartland. And so to some degree, if we see meaningful job losses through that, it may well be that job losses beat oil prices when it comes to re-election come November. If you were, if you were that way inclined, uh, that might be the approach you might uh, you might take. So we'll see. We'll see. Should we move on to the mailbag, mate? Yeah, look, here's a, I'm going to throw a, okay. uh, a fact, you know. The oil prices are now similar to the oil price that was there in 1947. <laughs> and, and people that, wonder why we don't invest in commodity companies. Yeah, so this is fascinating, I, I think. You know, and if that, that is without, 
any inflation dollars being uh, being inputted into the computation. Oh wow! Like, in, in, actual, in, in actual nominal prices. In actual nominal prices between wow. 1947 and 1948, oil was essentially between twenty dollars and thirty dollars. Now it's fair to and say it, that if you think about inflation over eighty years, that's probably not far off from the equivalent of falling from twenty dollars to what maybe four dollars in today's money. Yeah, you know, and, and, impact and, of inflation. Yeah, and then the oil price basically was around that level uh, until like 72s. And then I think that's when I think OPEC started doing its thing, when yes. the oil prices basically started, <laughs> started. well, they decided we just need to make more money off oil. So it became basically went from, you know, $25 to like $50 pretty, very quickly, right? And, we, you know, and then we've been sort of used to the $50 mark yep. <laughs> since then. So maybe we've just gone back to the historical knowledge. <laughs> Yeah, I hope so. I have to say, yeah, with a massive tangent, but a short one, um, environmentally, it's probably not a great thing, right? Because all the alternative energy sources that are more uh, economical at higher oil prices, all of a sudden have to work harder. Um, your, your Tesla, for example, uh, the electricity price doesn't change, but if oil, if oil and therefore petrol the pumps gets cheaper, it's just less of, a, less of a reason to improve our, speaking of pollution as we started at the top of the, of the show, um, less reasons to, to make those changes when the economics become much, much better for oil than for the alternatives. Now here's the funny thing, right? The funny thing is that if the price stays this low, a bunch of things are going to go bankrupt. <laughs> yes, right? exactly. And, it, and if, if they go bankrupt, the price would actually naturally tend upwards. <laughs> so, so, I mean, that, <laughs> that's like, that's, you know, uh, it's, a, it, it's, the, it, it's basically the, you know, an oversupply right now, which is yep. killing the, the, the marginal producers, really. So there you oh. go. We'll see how we go. All right, mate, let's move on to the mailbag. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy, our favorite part of the segment. A really good question, a really short question from Neil on Twitter, mate. And this I just thought was a really fascinating one. We'll try and keep it short-ish because we can talk for hours on this. But Neil just says very simply for the podcast. What would be the best case and the worst case scenario for this entire virus saga? Now, obviously, the worst case is the very worst case is we're all in caves by Christmas. And the very best case is there's a, there's a vaccine release tomorrow and the whole thing's over by Sunday. None of those is really likely. So we won't do the absolute best and absolute worst. But put your, um, put your prognostication cap on, mate. It, stay within the realms of reasonable likelihoods. What do you think? Let's start with worst case. I want to finish on a high note. What's the, what's the reasonable worst case scenario when it comes to the current virus pandemic, economically speaking, of course? Yeah, so that's a brilliant question made, uh, uh, from Neil. Um, yeah, so I think based on what we know, uh, I think the, the, the worst case probably is we essentially are in a shutdown or partial shutdown for, say, 8 to 12 months. Right. Right. Um, and, and that would just, and the reason it's, 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 it's not going to be bad. It's going to actually be good for lowering the debt numbers and things like that. The reason that's going to be bad is going to, it's going to throw a whole whack of the economy essentially into bankruptcy or some sort of bankruptcy prevention. You know, you basically have to quarantine large sections of the economy. Banks are going to be in trouble. Um, and, and, you know, the housing market is going to be in trouble. Um, retail is basically going to be in lots of trouble. So that, that I think, like a 12-month period, I think, is sort of the worst case that I, I can think. I mean, I would I'd be very surprised if there are governments that are willing and able 
to actually go on for 12 months in sort of the current regime. And that could only happen if, um, you know, there's, there's like a spike back up in, in cases, um, you know, if, if people think that, you know, normal prevention methods don't work or if people think that there's a setback in uh, sort of coronavirus uh, vaccination programs. So I, I think 12 months is what I think is sort of the worst case. It, is, it gets really worse because of the compounding flow on effects. Yeah. Right? So 12 months would appear right now, not a big deal, but... You always got to think too, as we get closer to, to that sort of time period, that I, I'm, I have a speculation that the national mood or the international mood would change meaningfully towards reopening everything and letting everyone take their chances. In terms of when the economic pain gets so bad, and again, whether it's right or wrong, we can put that aside, but I can't imagine a scenario where the population at large is happy that six months plus with businesses failing, unemployment hitting 10, 15, 20 plus percent, whatever the numbers get to, like at some point, Governments end up being forced to kind of have to go a bit wild west, right? I, I just I can't see how they can let entire economies crumble without, again, not saying they should or shouldn't do it, but without a response from the population that just says, "You're killing us here. We've got to get back to do. We've got to do something different. We've got to get back to normal and just kind of roll the dice." Which is a horrible scenario both ways, economically and health-wise, because that means meaningful, you know, multiple jumps, quantum leap jumps in, in death rates. But I, kind of, I just can't see a, a populace, particularly maybe even in America rather than here, but particularly here, I can't see it being like this in 12 months' time without there being some really serious social unrest. Yeah, I think that that is, that is you know, the social distancing would not work. At, social distancing requires discipline from people. <laughs> that yeah. would not probably work at the 12-month uh, point. So, um, yeah, but right. I think, you know, like, again, a heavy-handed approach, and that's what we want to do. I mean, it's, it's very interesting because, you know, as we were talking just before the podcast, um, it looks like New Zealand is basically trying to practice this model where they're basically looking mm. to completely eradicate the virus off New Zealand, mm. right? Mm-hmm. That works, but then you, have, you are a siloed island economy with no contact with the outside world, right? Now, that's yeah. a very different economy um, yeah. because, you know, if you just think of a large swath of tourism, that's just not working. So I, I think that's the worst case model. I think 12 months, 6 to 12 months. Eight, well, I said 8 to 12 months. The best case in my view is um, so I'll talk more specifically. I'll talk from from an Australian viewpoint. I think the best case. So one of the things that has worked really well for us is we we shut down relatively early to the flu season, and um, uh, so we're taking some early pain. That has prepared us better to actually handle the flu season. So that that is like a huge win actually. And then you know the fact that we're an island and all those things, you know, relatively smaller population that also helps. So in my mind, the best case scenario is that we start opening around October. That's, you know, okay. actually I'd be very happy in, uh, around October. And that would basically mean most of the flu season is behind us yeah. uh, by that time. And, and it, when, I, when I say opening, I, we could see some partial reopening. So for example, Germany, for example, has today announced that from Monday, they're going to do some, you know, reopen, start reopening schools and so on. Um, New South Wales government, I think, has said that, you know, we're going to, try to open term two three weeks later but we are going to open term two uh, and things like that so there's going to be maybe partial reopening and so on that people are going to but one of the one of the reasons i say october is that it takes care of the flu season it also gives us the opportunity to see what happens in the northern hemisphere where they'll be in summer and they would have passed sort of the wave one of uh, of the pandemic right it also i think means that we are giving that much lead time 
into a vaccine. So I think the best case scenario is that there is a vaccine available yeah. by September, yeah. October. Uh, wave one has actually dissipated most around most of the world. So either there is some sort of immunity or there's vaccination available. And I think at that point, the other thing that happens is that we have given ourselves between like, you know, uh, early March to October, the opportunity and the time to scale our health system, scale testing and so on, right? Mm-hmm. And at that point, I think, you know, we, we return to a very different world, but, you know, it seems like a very manageable problem at that point. You know, maybe we're taking temperatures, like, you know, my wife works in the hospital and, and now when she enters the hospital, basically there's a temperature measurement happening every day, right? Yeah. So you, you're taking temperature, you're taking the phone numbers of people, then you have a record, you know, so you do contact tracing. You know, for example, Google and Apple are working on this thing that allows for contact tracing using Bluetooth. Um, so if you have all of those things that are deployed, then I think you go back to a very different normal, but it mm. can be as close as possible to normal. So in you know my you know September October sort of you know is what I am thinking um, is is return to normal. So that's that's sort of my be- better case, uh, optimistic case is is that. If we get back to so you take make this financial, economic, or investing related, then if we get back to business in a few months, maybe it's October. That's still six months away. But um, in terms of you know for investors. What do you think the best and worst case outcomes are over the next six to 12 months? And then maybe even the long term after that. So, so I think investing is, here's the interesting thing, right? The moment the market in general understands that the, you know, the economy gets back to some set, sort of, you know, semblance of normalcy in say six months, or even if it's five months or four months, right? Mm-hmm. The market would start repricing itself, right? And maybe the market has already repriced some of that in mm because the share prices have rebounded to some extent, right? So, I mean, yeah, yeah. It's the, the, the market is a funny beast because, you know, uh, if the market thinks that things get back to, you know, some semblance of normalcy in four months or six months, then it starts mm. pricing that in. Equity prices go up. That makes it easier for companies to actually raise capital. Uh, the credit markets are less frozen up at that point um, and, and so on, right? So all of those, you know, there's, there's a positive, there's a cycle of positivity that helps. Um, so in terms of investing though, there, there's a couple of things that I think people can think about. One is there are good companies that would do well irrespective of um, the current situation, right? And, and they'll do well because they're just good companies, they're well run, they have large opportunities and things like that. So if, if, if there's no um, danger to the company disappearing from the planet because, or there's there's no danger, but there's less chances of that happening, then those companies are well-placed if they are appropriately priced, right? That's, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. The, the other way to think about it, you know, the other way to think about it is if you think that a company should be valued at X dollars, then, you know, you can think that the near-term earnings in the, this year and probably the next year is impaired to some extent. Uh, so that takes off maybe, you know, 10, 20% of their fair value and how much, are you paying relative to that? So if you know if you thought fair value was one dollar, maybe you should think that fair value is now eighty cents um, for a company that's going to stay going concern. I think that's that's so the uh, so balance sheet is really important uh, at this point. Um, and then I mean that's so that's that category. Those will be companies that are not affected. There are some companies that are going to be affected, right? So if you, I just don't think gaming, for example, the way we think about you know hundred thousand people in in a stadium watching the AFL yeah, or the MC or, you know, the, the, you know, the historic, the thing that we could never imagine would happen, like, you know, the MCG cricket match mm-hmm. uh, in December, right? 
that is not going to happen with 50,000 people. Yeah, right. I just don't think it's going to happen. Um, then, you know, things like travel and cruise, like, I mean, you know, how would you do social distancing? You know, I think social distancing <laughs> is going to be a norm. Um, airlines probably going to have the middle seat empty. It's going to mean that the economy seat is like a business class, <laughs> right? Yeah, right uh, which right. means the airlines are going to price those seats appropriately. Yes, they have yes. to remain profitable. Now, maybe the low oil prices help. So I think there's certain sectors that I think are going to have headwinds and they're going to have headwinds for years, right? Mm. Um, like travel, for example, right? So you, if, if you're investing in travel, then you have to be prepared to assume that, you know, things take like three to five years to get back to, say, 2019 levels. Um, and are you paying that price? So, you know, like, so the investing you can think of, you know, the basket of being down stocks, uh, are you getting a good price there? basket of good stocks that, you know, are growth stocks that are probably going to get back to growth really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, you know, often what happens, you don't get a good discount on those stocks <laughs> or you get a momentary discount on those stocks. Uh, so, uh, so again, you have to factor that in. And then there's, of course, the risk that you could pay up for a growth stock because everybody thinks that that is good and that's going to grow. <laughs> so that's that risk that you need to account for. I think the final thing I'll say to investors, you know, and this is on the top of my mind, is you've got to be thinking about the, the fact that money is going to be really cheap. And I think money is going to be cheap for now. Like if we were thinking money was going to be cheap for five years, now we probably should be thinking money is going to be cheap <laughs> right. for like 10 years, right? right Given right. the amount of money that's being, you know, the kitchen sink solution that's being thrown. Now what problems it causes later on down the lane, I don't know. But hmm. in the... You know, in valuation terms, you know, your risk-free rate basically goes down. And mm-hmm. I think you can assume that it is down for a long time. So that has some impact on valuation. So I'd look for compounders. My personal preference would be, you know, uh, you know compounding machines that uh, are riding some sort of secular trend, right? So if they're riding secular trend and they're compounding machines, those are going to be really good companies to own. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd say the core of somebody's portfolio should just be that. And then you can play around with, you know, risky companies, high risk companies, you know, uh, in, in smaller bites, right? So, you know, it's, it's a portfolio question, but I think compounders are going to do well. Um, and and, and I'd, I'd separate between a little bit between, you know, a true compounder and a fake compounder. <laughs> if, I, if, uh, if I may say so, you know, there are lots of fake compounders, but then there are some true compounders. So I think you want to separate between those two. Nice. I like that. I think um, well, my, my take, oh, you've done a great job of summarizing that, uh, Doc. I, my couple of thoughts, I think, Neil, I, I think the worst, yeah, the very, excluding the very worst case where literally the economy collapses permanently, which is not impossible, but remarkably, remarkably unlikely. If this was to go on for two years and 80% of businesses go out of business because not enough you know, volume, I mean, those things, if and when they happen, that's just kind of life, right? That, you know, that, that's, that, that is the unlikely, but, but still, a skerrick of possibility. Outside that, to Doc's point, in five years' time, assuming we get through this, the quality businesses that have enough cash to get through, who can get their profits back to and then above past levels, as I've said before, I think I think in both the best and the worst case scenarios, it's still okay. You know, at a, at, a, at a market level, if the economy can go back to the same size it was and then grow from there, if company profits can go back to the same size and grow from there, um, then I think we're you know there's no need to be too freaked out by the short-term response. I think, as Doc said, there are companies that won't make it through. Absolutely, there are companies that will make it through, but meaningfully diluted. And we talked about capital raisings earlier and last week. Those things are very real 
possibilities for some companies. And so you should be mindful of that as well. Um, as always, diversification is key. I think Doc's point is really important too about those secular growers. If you look at businesses, so during the, during the GFC, two companies that shouldn't by rights have grown were Automotive Holdings, the car company, because it sold new cars, and Flexi Group, that provided consumer debt. Now, when we're not spending, <laughs> excuse me, and when our bad debts go up, you should expect fewer new cars sold, check, uh, less consumer debt and, and less retail sales, check. Both true. The difference was these companies were small and taking market share during that period of time. So they grew during that time, share price-wise and, and, and in total, despite being you know, in, in those sort of spaces that in theory didn't, and it did actually decline, they, they didn't see negative growth, but these companies were small and growing and were able to take advantage of that. So it's hard because as Doc said earlier, small companies are riskier by definition, but if you can find that sweet spot of some sort of cyclical, secular growth, despite the cyclical challenges, that can be a nice way to play this. I completely agree with that, Doc. All right, mate, nice one more question, I reckon, and then we'll call it quits. What do you reckon? That sounds good. Very good. Question from David. Now, this is a 5G question, mate. There's one for you, Doc. Um, I've been phenomenally surprised by the conspiracy theories on Twitter about this, but let's, let's go with it anyway. He says, G'day, Scott and Doc. Thanks for answering my question earlier on in the year and providing a rational commentary amongst the panic, doom, and gloom that seems to be dominating most facets of life these days. You're welcome, David. That's what we do. Uh, while COVID-19 is the biggest factor affecting the share market at the moment, there's also another development on the horizon, which is the rollout of 5G. Instead of getting distracted by the groundless conspiracy theories going around, I see this as an opportunity and something that will continue in our lives post-COVID-19. And I would like to know what your thoughts are on it. Is investing in 5G considered late to the party at this point? And if not, what kind of companies would stand to benefit the most? So far, I have shares in Apple, which is expected to release its 5G phone later in the year. I've had my eye on Vonex and 5G networks, which are both telcos appearing to benefit from the coronavirus as people are switching to a work from home setup and will likely benefit from 5G. He says, are innovative microcap telcos going to benefit the most? Or would tech stocks be a better place to look? And should investors be wary of micro-cap stocks? It seems like a question that Doc's expertise would be well suited for. Thanks, David. Uh, and perhaps an excuse to talk about Apple, he says. But what should people be looking for and what options are likely to be effective in helping people take advantage of this new technology? I know you can't give specific advice, but any thoughts and general advice you're willing to offer are always appreciated. Keep doing what you're doing. Fool on, David. Great question from David. Thank you, Doc. Look, Doc, despite the fact he only wants your expertise, because, you know, David, seriously, mate, I've got feelings too. Um, <laughs> mate, so 5G, Doc. So let's go in order. Uh, your thoughts on 5G as a technology and who is likely to benefit most from it? So like 5G basically is going to, I think the interesting thing with 5G is it's going to enable different type of applications um, that we currently don't see. So, and, and it's not really about speed. So, I mean, speed is only one of the benefits, but I think the other biggest, bigger benefit from 5G is going to be latency. So, by latency, I mean, how much time does it take for a piece of data to transmit from one piece? How much time it physically actually takes for the signal to bounce from one location to the other location, right? Okay. And, and there's, that's basically the physics. Uh, I mean, you know, different, different types of um, connections uh, have take different amounts of time for actually physically transmitting the information the, the lag, right, so to speak. 
right? And then the, you know, the speed is one of the speeds, basically just how much data can you shove through a pipe at, at a certain rate. The speed, of course, goes on, but you know the speed is pretty. I think a couple of one interesting thing I think in in, in the Australian context would be, you know, we could actually potentially get five uh, G broadband at home, right? Yeah. And that that you know that would have material impact on um, on on the telcos, for example, right? You know, the telcos instead of giving NBN might actually be offering five G five G broadband. And that might change the dynamics uh, or the game of telcos. I mean, so I mean, I mean keep an eye on telcos. Actually, um, I, I don't know how much. But I mean, you know, I'm not a big fan of Telstra, but it seems like it, you know, as a local company, I think it is one of the companies that is likely to benefit uh, from mm-hmm. 5G. Right? I mean, it's already rolling out some, um, you know, and it could potentially actually benefit because it might be you know able to not just because of its largest mobile network spread. Uh, but also be able to do the home broadband things. I think that's interesting. In in terms of um, other things that I think are beneficial, we wouldn't know what they are right now, but you know, <laughs> things like augmented reality, virtual reality, different types of applications um, uh, that, you know, so people are going to probably develop new applications that take advantage of 5G and the lower latencies and, and things like that that come with 5G. So, I think that's a further down the track. So that'll be more of the application layer than in terms of the telcos. Um, you know, right now if I had to back, back a telco, I'd probably back the bigger telcos to actually be at a better position because they'll be at a better position to deploy 5G quickly. Um, so that sort of answers uh, part one of the question i think let me let me throw you a question a uh, supplementary question to, to david's question so it, it strikes me as you talk about 5g now what i'm what i'm hearing is a, i think is analogous to saying you know if you knew the internet was coming you could buy the cable companies that provide the internet but there was far more value to be created by companies who use the internet for their other purposes and that's where the real value was created right rather than buying the the transmission technology yeah. itself um, you could have, you could buy the internet, of course, but you could have bought cable companies on the same basis. If someone said, "Look, there's the internet coming," buy and in the US case, it might have been you know Comcast, something else. Here, it could have been Telstra, and they have put a lot of traffic through, but not to huge financial gain. The gains came from companies finding ways to use that technology to provide products and services to us. Yeah, so so that's right. So I mean, you know, so he's you know he's a shareholder in Apple. For so so you know, it's it's common. The common theory right now behind Apple is you know is that you you own the Apple shares because it's going to see a huge, uh, you know, five G upgrade cycle, right? right? And that I that is all true, and and probably will see a huge upgrade cycle. But I think that misses sort of the you know the forest for the trees because, um, because what I think Apple would benefit is. The, the flow on effect of 5G, right? So there, there probably will be a huge slew of different applications and hardware and software that we currently don't see, which right. are probably going to be the next generation of tools and techniques and things that, you know, services that we're going to use, right? So, you know, like Apple is, exa- is an example of a company that's perfectly positioned to benefit from 5G. But, you know, I think everybody's thinking about the 5G upgrade cycle, which is going to be you know, a couple of, it's going to be like a super cycle and everybody's excited with that. And that's going to be, you know, drive earnings. But I think the real benefit is going to be from, you know, potentially say a headset or, you know, an AR glasses or something that would create sort of the next generation, as you said, the next generation, the, the layers above that, 
right? Mm-hmm. And which is not just be Apple, but other people who build on top of that would, would benefit from it. But you know, that, that's what, what, what I see with Apple. So you know, I own Apple shares not for the 5G cycle, but for the mm-hmm. fact that you know, they'll be able to innovate on top of 5G um, and, and so on. So yeah, so that, I think that, that is, that, that's a really good analogy. I like it. Very good. Dr. Sadish has to talk about Apple, so that must mean we've hit ticked all the boxes for this particular podcast. And so that will wrap us up for today. What do you reckon? Maybe do a mailbag on Sunday? Yeah, let's do a mailbag on Sunday. Beautiful. There you go. You heard it from the man himself. We have a mailbag episode coming this Sunday, so stay tuned. And of course, it's a good opportunity to remind you to subscribe to the Triple M Motley for Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app to make sure you don't miss Sunday's episode. And then Money Hacks next Tuesday and our regular episode next Friday and on and on it goes. So much goodness, you don't want to miss out. If you like what we're doing, please give us a rating, leave us a review, tell your friends. Again, this stuff works mostly on word of mouth, the app engine that built that way, speaking of apps and 5G. So the more people you can tell about it using those particular methods, I said, tell your friends, let them know, send them an email, jump us, uh, leave us a review or give us some stars. That would really, really help everybody get more from us. And of course, you can get a dose of foolishness and an offer to do in dividend investor straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back, well, on Sunday with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.